Well, hey, everybody, thank you so much for joining us from wherever you are. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be with you. And, and I really believe the song we just sang, the powerful name of Jesus, I think we're seeing that in these days. In fact, uh, when I kind of rewind, um, in fact, let me just share this. This is the 26th week that we have been doing this online. And uh, that is half a year, if you're counting. And uh, I am so shocked in, in an amazing, pleasant way because of, of what I'm seeing these days. Um, you know, when we were first kind of entering into this, we were hearing stories from other countries where, where the church was shutting down, where churches were being closed because of the pandemic. And I remember just sitting and thinking like, will our church survive this? Like, what will it look like to be in an environment in America where we couldn't gather as a community of faith? And uh, I'll just say as a pastor, I had some moments when I thought, well, um, I don't know if I'll have a job. You know, I could be selling avocados or something, you know, when this is all over. Um, but, but, but what I've seen through this season is that God is moving. The powerful name of Jesus is working during this time. In fact, I'm hearing about all sorts of people everywhere who are, who are tuning into our services. Some of you, I want to welcome you specifically. I've heard from folks in different states and different parts of the country that have, that have now, you're a part of B4 and I welcome you to, to, to this community of faith. And we're figuring out ways to engage you in community, even though you might not be locally with us. Uh, I'm hearing stories and I've met this week some people that this is, they're brand new to our church and they've come during this time. And so um, every indicator for me seems to say that our church is actually growing during the pandemic, which is sort of mind blowing, but it also, I think, reveals the powerful nature of who Jesus is. And so uh, I'm just, I I'm, I'm, would love to be back together, but I see Jesus working during this time. And I, I just want to encourage you with that news. Um, if you've been with us, then you know that we're studying the book of Acts right now in a series called When the World Turned Upside Down. And the, the text that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 17, I think has particular relevance to where we are uh, these days. In fact, um, I, I've noticed this, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but th there's an increasing number of people who are talking about spiritual things in our culture right now. Uh, I, I think part of it's because the veneer has been pulled back of our lives. You know, we're kind of down to just seeing what's really important, what's really valuable. And so I'm just sort of hearing like an uptick in conversations around spirituality. But, but here's what's also fascinating. It's not just because of this season. Um, the Pew Research Organization, just a few years ago, they released some data that revealed that over the last decade, spiritual conversations in American culture in particular are actually on the rise. That more people in America are talking about spirituality today, that more people are, are desiring something more. Um, in fact, um, there's this idea that they have, they, they want... They want something that, that centers them. In fact, let me just share it this way, because one of the things their research discovered is that people are less interested in religion, but they're more interested in spirituality. And by spirituality, this is how they define this, and I'll put it on the screen for you, that people are saying essentially this, this is a summary, that I want an inward center, I want an inward peace, I want a deeper sense of meaning and a connection with something that is sacred. That's what's stirring in our culture. And I think it makes sense. In fact, I would say that's, that's pretty insightful because what people are identifying, what they're recognizing, that there's something missing. There's something in their lives that's absent. They're starting to look at and sort through all the different aspects of their lives and realize there's something else out there. There has to be something else. It's this acknowledgement that we're not reaching our full potential, that we're not seeing everything that is. 
And, and so today, I think as much as any time in history, people are willing to and even wanting to dialogue about spiritual realities. What's true? What's really going on? What is the veneer? And what is authentic? What is the core of what life is? Which brings us to the relevance of this text today. Today, we come to a passage of scripture that is just full of application to answer those questions around truth that we're just talking about. Um, today, we're going to see how Jesus is understood in a culture like ours and what it looks like when we allow him to answer some of those deeper questions that we're asking. And, and we're going to see the message of Jesus doesn't always fit into the nice confined boxes that we would like it to fit into. Jesus does some things that stretch our understanding, that stretch our cultural understanding of life. So if you happen to have a Bible in front of you right now, I just want you to open up to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start reading in verse 16. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow along on the screen because um, this, this is what it says. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So let me just explain that in the missionary journeys of Paul at this point in the story, he's traveled to the city of Athens. Uh, Athens, in, in, in many ways, it's the intellectual capital of the world. Even though it's a little later in history, this is still a, a city that has significant cultural influence and cultural impact. Athens is still a very important city in the world. Um, Athens is the city where ideas are debated. Uh, Athens is still the city where culture is being formed, where philosophies are being honed and, and discussed. And I want you to just notice something about this text that I just read. It says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue, which is what we've heard him do before. He, he goes to the synagogue. He finds religious people. He finds people that, that have already shown some sort of spiritual interest. And he's explaining to them these things about who Jesus is. But then it also has this second reference. It says that Paul reasoned in the marketplace. Now, this is really important because when it says that Paul reasoned in the marketplace, it reveals something about his understanding of the gospel. What, what this reveals is that Paul sees the gospel not simply as something that brings sort of private personal peace and help to us, but he sees the gospel as something for the public square. And, and, and here's why. Here's why we see this. When we hear the marketplace, when we hear that in our culture today, we probably think of, you know, we think of Safeway. We think of a grocery store. We might even go as far as thinking maybe about a mall that we can't go to, something like that. Um, but, but this word has a very different understanding in Athens. The marketplace in Athens is actually the agora. It's, um, it's known as the cultural center of the city. And let me just explain that back then... Um, you don't have news stations. You didn't get newspapers. You went to the Agora and there were heralds that would come to the Agora and they would announce important news. People would send them there to tell people about things that were happening in the world. So if you wanted to know what was going on, you went to the marketplace and you heard the news from people in the, in the Agora. Um, where were ideas debated and, and where were political ideas talked about? Well, it wasn't on Facebook. Um, I think I'd like Athens, actually, now that I think of it. Um, it was in the marketplace. It was in the Agora. That's where people debated ideas. That's where they discussed politics. Um, there, there was no stock market. There was no Amazon. There was no banking system. So where did you do commerce? Where did you make your money? You went to the Agora. You went to the center of the city in order to engage in that place from a commercial standpoint. So you have to understand that the ideas and culture were being formed in the Agora and what would flow out of the Agora in Athens in particular would flow out to the, to the culture as the new prevailing ideas. 
So these things happening in this place, this, these ideas that are being discussed, these concepts that are being debated, they would ultimately shape the philosophy that people would live by, and then it would leak out from the city of Athens. So when Paul shows up in Athens, where does he go? It says he reasons in the marketplace. He goes to the Agora. He goes to the center place, and he reasoned. Now, the word chosen to describe what Paul did is a really important one when it says that, that he reasoned. Um, this particular word that's used is a reference to Socratic reasoning. Socratic reasoning, let me just explain, isn't simply debate. So Paul doesn't go there and just start arguing with people. Um, certainly, it's not the kind of debate that we see in our culture, two people that are just moving through talking points or two people who are just lobbing insults at each other. That's not what we're talking about. Certainly what he did isn't preaching. We know that. The word that's used is not the word for preaching. Paul didn't go to the marketplace and then get up on a soapbox and just start yelling at people and saying, this is the truth and you need to know it. He doesn't get a bullhorn and start screaming at people what what they need to believe. That's not what he's doing. No, Socratic reasoning means you ask questions. It means you help, you help yourself understand where are these people coming from? What are their philosophies? What, why do they think of the world this particular way? And then you consider engaging them from their standpoint. That's Socratic reasoning. You, you learn about the other person. What do they believe? What are their premises? You listen carefully. And then on the basis of what they believe, that's when you present your ideas. And that's what it's describing Paul doing in the Agora, in the marketplace. He goes to the center of culture and he breaks out the gospel and says, let me talk to you about this thing, the gospel. Let me share this good news with you, which, which really reveals that he believes that the gospel has what it takes to challenge the most dominant ideas in culture. He believes this. He takes it there because he says, this is so powerful. This is so strong. This isn't some weak philosophy that needs to be tested. He takes it to the center of, of the culture and says, I'm going to bring this to bear because I believe it has weight and it will influence and affect these ideas. So so what does that mean for us? Well, it means for us, people who live in a culture where we do business, people who live in a culture where we engage in, in making art, making music, creating things, in a culture where ideas are debated, it means that we engage, and we engage like he does. We don't simply preach at culture. That's not what Paul's doing, and it's not what we're called to do, just to simply yell at people and tell them what they should be believing. This is the truth, and this is the way it is. At the same time, we don't hide from culture. So many people today, we just kind of take the gospel, and we sort of privatize our faith. Well, this is what I believe, and I don't really need to take it to the marketplace. But Paul shows us something very different. He's not preaching, and at the same time, he's also presenting. He's going public with these things. He's showing us that we engage. Because the gospel does more than just resolve your desire for personal peace. The gospel has the power to to challenge the dominant ideas of of any particular culture, including ours. In fact, the gospel has to challenge those ideas because if the gospel, if we discontinue challenging culture with the message of the gospel, then then it discontinues being the gospel. It discontinues being good news. So Paul brings it. He opens it up. And I want you to see what happens next. Look at verse 18. It says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, um, when we read this text, we, we have a very unique position that Paul didn't have in this moment. Um, we can look back and we can see the irony of what's happening here. And let me just explain this. Paul gets mocked. Um, when we get to the end, you'll see that they even, they sneer at him. It's actually the language that's used at the end of this. But I want you to notice what the text says. They say, what is this babbler trying to say? They call him a babbler. A babbler literally means a seed-picking bird. So, so this is an insult. They're, they're insulting. They're saying, uh, let me just, if you've ever planted grass before, I don't know if you've ever done this, uh, if you've ever put in a yard and you plant grass and then you uh, watch the birds come eat your seed after you've spread it out there and you're watering, you're nurturing it, there's nothing more infuriating. That's kind of what they're describing Paul as, is this bird that comes. In fact, what they're insinuating is, is that he doesn't even have an original idea, that these things you're saying, you sort of picked up this thing and this thing and you've got these different ideas and you've, you've thrown them together. What are you even talking about? That's what it means to be a babbler. So the cultural elites are mocking him and they're mocking the gospel. The irony, as I mentioned, of course, is this. Within the next 250 years, Christianity would sweep through that society and completely change the dominant cultural ideas. I mean, within a few hundred years, this idea that the most intelligent people on the planet are, are, are calling ridiculous would be the, the very idea that the most intelligent people in the world would believe. So how does this happen? And the real question is, how would this happen again? Let me just explain this, that every culture, no matter how ideal we may think it is, no matter how perfect we might try to pretend it is, every culture has problems. Every city, every town, every, every group of people, there is a dark side to it. There are weaknesses, there are issues, there are unmet aspirations, there are unmet ideas and dreams. And the dominant cultural ideas are trying to resolve these tensions. That's, the, that's what happens in a culture. How do we make these things that we're experiencing go away? How do we, how do we pacify ourselves in this? And, and what took place in this culture is that the gospel came along and resolved these tensions that existed in a broken culture better than the dominant culture. And because of that, things changed. When you have a solution like the gospel that actually fixes things and resolves things in people's hearts and resolves things in our society, then people begin to believe it. We see the beginning of this in this text. It says that Paul, he was debating with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Um, the Epicureans and the Stoics were people who had ideas about how to make a, a life that worked, how to make a life that was meaningful or a life that had some sort of resolution to it. Um, in fact, let me just say this. Epicureans and Stoics, um, this is a generalization, but, but generally speaking, the Stoics were the moralists. They had moral, the kind of a moral standard they, they thought we were supposed to keep. And the Epicureans were the relativists. Like, we just want life to feel good. So moralists and relativists. So, so the Epicureans, they believed that when you died, um, there was really nothing. There was nothing after death. And if there are gods, they really don't have much to do with us. And so they're sort of distant. So the Epicureans said that the meaning of life was not found in, in shaping culture, in, in having a relationship with some sort of deity. They didn't believe that there was any sort of difference that could be made by living morally um, relevant lives. They believed that life was about doing what you want. Um, the Epicureans thought you should be free to do what you want. Epicureans believed that you live for pleasure because you only have one life, and so you might as well make it the best you can. Um, I might sound very familiar to our culture today. 
So for example, let me just give you an example of one aspect of Epicurean thought. Um, Epicureans talked a, a significant amount around um, sexual freedom, um, which brings up a really good question. How is it possible that, the, that Christianity eventually overruns Epicurean philosophy when Christianity had, at the surface, when you first look at it, a more restrictive view of sex? How in the world could that be possible? That, that here the Epicureans, they had all these freedoms around sexuality, and, and here Christianity comes along and it seems to be sort of regressive and, and limiting. How in the world does that overrun Epicurean philosophy? What, what would have won in that culture? Why would that have happened? Well, the answer is really simple, and I can just distill it down to this. The idea that sex is something that you engage in to make yourself happy will eventually lead to horrible loneliness. And so this seemingly more restrictive view of sex that was held in Christianity, it actually led to more unity. It led to more fulfillment in the long run. And as a result of that, just for that one reason alone, Christianity flourished, which is really interesting. Um, I often hear people talk about Christian views of sex and sexuality today, and they, they, they talk about it like it's primitive, you know, like, like the world has changed. You know, it's about time for the church to sort of catch up with, with culture and we're kind of behind. And, you know, that's, that's the sort of primitive thinking for people. But let me just say this, um, because saying that sort of thing is, is ignorant of history. Christianity was born in a culture that looked like this one. Um, Christianity, most people living in Paul's day, the, the day that, they, that Christianity became a, a reality, they were, they were believing about sex the way that people believe about sex in our culture today. And when Christianity came along, it actually elevated our view of one another, especially it elevated the views that men held of women. And so that immediately began to change certain things. Uh, it elevated our understanding of our bodies. Christianity gave us a response to loneliness that people felt and people embraced it. So Christianity, Christian, Christian sexuality wasn't and actually isn't regressive. It's actually in many ways progressive. It was progressive then. And in many ways it's progressive today thinking about sex in the way that they were thinking about it, that was the primitive idea. And now there's this new idea. And it came at a time when people were realizing this isn't working. Like our views on sexuality, they're not making us any happier. We're not any healthier. Our homes aren't any more whole. None of those things were working. And so when they heard this view, they embraced it. So the Epicureans, they realized their philosophy eventually is inferior. And there's this deeper, more meaningful life that's found in Christianity. And so that philosophy begins to fade as it confronts or is confronted with Christianity. So that's the Epicureans. Then you have the Stoics, which are a very different group. The Stoics believed in moral absolutes. They believed that, that meaning in life was, was to be good. It was to be virtuous. It was to be noble. It was to be courageous. Um, they believed you shouldn't be rattled by life and, and that the way you respond to hardship was by hardening yourself. This is this is this idea that, that, you know, like real men don't cry, just be strong, don't weep, you know. Um, this is the why, why we use the word stoic to describe somebody who's sort of cold and, and doesn't emote things. Um, now, the problem with stoicism is that it really doesn't work. <laughs> um, and, and we don't need historians to prove this because we all know this. People eventually break down. People wear out. This is a normal thing. We see it in our society right now that we can just get worn down. Eventually, there is a straw that breaks the camel's back. And the reason we have that saying, if you think about it, is because it's true. We're familiar with it because there eventually, in most people's lives, is a moment when there's a straw that breaks the camel's back. We break. Everyone cracks. Everyone breaks. So Christianity comes along and offers hope even when you break. 
Christianity actually says, you know what? You aren't strong enough and you don't have to try to be strong enough. You're not, no one is strong enough. But in the same breath, Christianity says, but you're not alone and you don't have to do it alone. And, and so what we discover through history is that genuine Christians then, in fact, even Christians today, um, genuine Christians, they suffer differently and they actually suffer really well compared to everyone else. And so because of that, Christianity increased. People said, wow, we're all kind of cracking, but those Christians, they just seem to get through with each other and, and they sort of thrive in, in these moments. And so the Stoicism decreased. That's not the only reason, by the way, that it decreased. Um, the Stoics believed that there were moral absolutes. And really interesting, they called the moral absolutes the logos. The logos was the meaning of life. It was the, the rational structure behind the universe. The Stoics believed that there was a set of moral absolutes. And if you were wise enough, you could discern what reality was or what was true, um, a bit like Plato, if you will. You have to discern what is right. So Christianity comes along and it actually says, you know what, we agree with this. We actually agree with you in many ways, right? There is meaning to life. There is a logos. There is a structure behind the universe, but that structure is personal. The Logos is Jesus. And if you want to know the meaning of life, if you want to know how we live, the way you get in touch with that is not to contemplate philosophy, but to have a personal relationship. Do you realize how that changes everything? Now we're not just talking about ideas. Now we're actually engaging in a relationship. It's so much more gracious because now what you also realize is that it's not just for smart people. It's not just for philosophers. It's not just for people who live in first world countries. It's for everyone because now it's a matter of love. It's a matter of relationship, not a matter of your IQ. So Paul stands and he's discussing these ideas with the Epicureans and the Stoics, but the Stoics are cold and the Epicureans, they're, they're just sort of empty and lonely. And I think all of this informs what he says next. They take him to the Areopagus, which is a gathering of the most elite thinkers, the greatest intellectuals of the day. They take him there and Paul delivers this masterful speech. I could, I could go into it, but uh, I just want to get the larger heart of what's being said here. He's giving them a big God, bigger than they've ever imagined God to be. He's giving them a great God. He's giving them a real God. And he's completely reshaping what human beings understand God to be like. Uh, and for most people then, and actually most people even today, when we imagine the gods or we imagine God, we typically, um, we typically imagine a projection of ourselves with a bit more power. God's a lot like me, but he's a little bit more powerful than me. And in their day, and probably even in some people's thinking today, you have to give those gods what they want in order to get what you want. So this idea of just loving God, this idea of just sort of freely worshiping God because you love God, that would have never been a part of the culture. So Paul comes along and he says some beautiful and breathtaking things as it relates to God and then um, connects them with our search for more. I want you to just read this in verse 22. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul, walking around the city of Athens, he finds this altar to an unknown God, literally the agnostos theos. And, and they had all of these altars and all of these idols in the city of Athens, and they had a long history of sacrificing to these gods. But there's this altar to the agnostos theos, and, and it stands out for Paul. By the way, Paul didn't see this as the result of some polytheist who was like, you know what, let's just cover our bases. In case there's a God we don't know about, let's just cover our bases. Like, that's not how he sees it. Like, he actually sees it for what it is. He looks at it, and I think this is very true. 
He's basically saying this, in all of your search, you still have a sense that you're missing something. In all of your quest to satisfy these gods, you still have a nagging sense that there's a God you haven't met yet. And then he says that I'm going to reveal him to you. I'm going to show you this God that you seem to sense is there. And then he goes on to describe this God in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, so on one hand, this God is bigger than any God you've ever known, any God you've ever seen, any God you've ever built an idol for. This God is bigger. But then he says this in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I love that Paul actually appeals to them from, his, from their own writings. He says this, he says, you've, kn you've known that this God is there, but then he says, this God in whom we live and move and have our being, that was one of their poets, this God who, who's referred to you as their offspring, this God he introduces as this massive big God, but then he says he's a personal God. He's bigger than you've ever dreamed, and yet he's closer than you imagined. He's right here. He's right next to you. You know, that same... Um, the same Pew research that was released a few years ago um, that I referenced at the beginning of the message, uh, it, it, it states that people have a strong desire in our culture right now to experience moments of wonder. Um, like when a baby is born, you know, there's a moment when a baby's born and there's just like wonder that you, you can't even describe the emotions. Or uh, when somebody gives you an unexpected gift and, you know, you, you didn't see it coming and you're like, I, there's a moment of like, you're just kind of in awe. Or for me, the biggest one is when you go up on a, a mountain vista, you know, you, you suddenly take in a, a beautiful view and you see mountains and trees and all of creation. And there's that sense of something kind of coming over you. We call that wonder, you know, we're, we're filled with awe. And when we have those moments, what Paul is saying, that feeling, it's more than a feeling, you're coming close to the God who is there. You're becoming aware. Your senses are being awakened to the reality of this creator. So, so Paul shares this, and then he does something completely unexpected. He goes on to describe our response. Verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring. So he just sort of assumes you're, this is who you are. We ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what is he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, up until now, you have crafted a God in your image, in the image that you've thought him to be. You've decided who God would be. You've decided what he would be like. And it's based on your ideas. It's based on what you desire. But this God, this God who is bigger and more wonderful and more intimate than any other God, this God isn't found when we form him into our image. We don't find this God by wrapping our minds around him. We find this God when we choose to follow him. Notice that Paul uses a really critical word to Christianity here. He says, you need to repent. You need to repent. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, it's a really simple word. It means that you need to turn. That, that if you're moving in a direction and you have a philosophy about how life is lived, you have ideas about where you're going to find fulfillment or happiness or joy or peace, that is like a pathway. And you are moving on that pathway. You're making decisions every day to pursue that philosophy. And the word repent literally means that you pivot and you go in the other direction and specifically the direction that Jesus is now leading you once you've chosen to follow him. That is the expression of repent. You turn from your stoic ideas. You turn from your moralism. You turn from your Epicurean ideas. You turn from your relativism and your pleasure seeking. You say, those things aren't going to fulfill me. Only Jesus is. And so I'm going to listen to him. Even when everything he says is the opposite direction of those things I've been pursuing, I'm going to listen to him and I'm going to pursue him. That's what he says. If you want life, if you really want to resolve this thing in your heart, you pivot, you turn, and you follow Jesus. This is a God who is bigger than you've ever imagined, but he's closer than you ever dreamed. And you can know him, and you know him when you choose to follow him. When, when we follow Jesus, we discover a freedom that Epicureanism could never deliver. When we follow Jesus, we experience a truth that is deeper and far more meaningful, more hopeful than anything a Stoicism could ever provide for us. He's an unknown God, and maybe he is to you, but he's been made known, and he is Jesus. So I'm going to ask the band to prepare to close us in a song, and as, as they get ready to lead us in one final song today, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to reflect on this. Do you need to repent? Do you need to pivot? Do you need to turn? Are there, are there ideas that are rooted in Stoicism? Are there ideas that are rooted in Epicureanism that you have decided to follow? In fact, I believe that there are some people who think they're following Jesus, but in reality, they're just asking Jesus to fulfill their Stoic or their Epicurean dreams. Are there things that you're holding on to? Maybe some of you, you're just exploring and you're trying to make sense of this whole world. And maybe for the first time, you're like, Jesus makes sense. Is it time for you to say yes to following Jesus and pursuing with all of your being what he says, what he leads us in, what he draws us towards? If you ever want to know what God looks like, if you ever wonder, you know, God, what do you like? What, do you, what, what is this God who has created the universe really all about? What Paul is saying, what the Bible says, what the church has been saying for thousands of years is, you just have to look at Jesus. And I'll just share this. Every time I ever look at the person of Jesus, my heart warms and I get excited about the God of creation being shown to me in the person of Jesus. If that's who God is, then I wanna give my life to him. Let's take some time and reflect and I'll close us with the benediction in just a moment. No things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant grace remains a cornerstone. that we fought through breathing in life again and you cause your sun to shine on darkest nights for 
Epicureanism still exists in our culture today, and Stoicism does as well. And, and I believe that explains why so many people in our culture over the last decade have been asking lots of questions about spirituality. And let me just share this with you. I don't think you'll ever look at the person of Jesus. I don't think you'll ever choose to follow him and be disappointed with what he provides you in contrast to what those things offer you. And so I encourage you, may you be men and women who time and time again, say yes to Jesus. May you put aside your Epicurean ideas. May you lay down your stoicism and may you follow him and discover the God who is larger than you ever imagined and closer than you ever dreamed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We really, really, really appreciate you joining us during this season. All sorts of things on our website, ways that you can engage, classes, courses, opportunities to gather on our campus. Please check those things out. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.